You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today I'll be reading out of Psalm 78, 1 through 19. It's on page 457 in the Bibles under your seat. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the word of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, I just want to lift up the sermon today. I want to pray for whoever is giving the sermon, um, that your spirit would guide them, and that your spirit would be with us as we listen, and that we would um, gain a new understanding of the passage Um, that it wouldn't just go in one ear and out the other, but that we would really take hold of the word and apply it to our lives and let us, let our lives be changed by it, because that's your will for us, Lord, to read the word and have it change us. Um, I also want to pray for Central. I want to pray for the students, the administration, the teachers. I pray that your peace would be with them, and I pray that the truth would abide here as well. I pray that um, your spirit would just be here with them throughout the school year, Lord, and that um, you, would, you would just share the truth with them, God, and let the truth take hold in their hearts. So I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Casey. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and we are in uh, Psalm 78. And uh, we're going to look at Psalm 78. First off, that it's, uh, it's a song, and, and it's meant to be sung. It's a song that's meant to be sung to teach us to remind ourselves of what God has done so that when we're in a wilderness and we don't know where to go or what to do, our hearts can sing. And this is actually something like, like we do. Like, I mean, in grade school, to memorize things, you learned songs. 
And so, like, I mean, I could probably start a song. You might, like, finish it, like, you know, 50 nifty United States. You know, like, people could keep singing, and they know the states and capitals because of a song that reminds them of something that is true, something that they can remember. And so Asaph takes something out of that book and says, man, I'm going to write a song. So wherever you find yourselves, you might remember the mighty things that God has done in the past to fuel strength in the present. You know, other songs, um, you know, if you ever had the, the president song where you memorize the order, you know, George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson. I think I got that wrong. But anyways, <laughs> we memorized that song. It didn't help me much, but we memorized it. And so what we see before us is a song And what we see before us is what happens when God takes you in a direction you don't want to go. Like everything in this song is is about God's people being in a wilderness on the way to the promised land. And they didn't want to stay in the wilderness, but God turned them south when they needed to go east. He took them a long ways out of the way for them to do something in them to make them ready for the promised land. And so what we wrestle with in this psalm is what happens when God forces me to go south when all I want to do is go east. And I, I actually want to apologize as I'm thinking about this. If, if you've ever waved at me when I'm driving and I didn't wave back, I just want you to know I will never see you and wave back. I, I don't know what is wrong with me, but I can like, I swear I see the road. I swear I see coming traffic. I only had one accident. It was a small accident, a rear-ended guy, but that was a phone issue. But I swear, like I, I swear I, I see the road. Man, it, it, earlier this week, Kinsey and I were going to meet up because we had accrued enough Dylan's points uh, to get a dollar off for gas because we buy a lot of groceries. And uh, if you're not familiar with this, and if you're a Dylan's executive, I will mention you if you sponsor me every week, every week. But uh, so we uh, were going to meet up. And so I was going to go buy some groceries, try to get us to the full dollar. And she was going to meet me at the gas station. And so I go in, buy a few things. I come out, I load it up in my truck. I get in my truck. I start driving over to the gas station and my phone's vibrating. And I look at it and I miss like three calls from Kinsey. And I answer, she's like, what is going on? And I'm like, what? She's like, I was parked right in front of you. I was waving at you. Like literally the car was right in front of you. How did you not see me? And I was like, hey man, I had groceries, you know, I don't know. But what do we do when you miss it all? What do you do when God encamps you around Mount Sinai that you might remember the law of God and what he's bestowed upon and you miss it and you build a false God to worship right at the foothills of where the law of God came from. What do you do? What do you do when you're trying to go east to the promised land? It's 200 miles in a straight shot and God turns you right to go south, 200 miles out of the way and all along the way you're afraid. What do you do? The background of Psalm 78 is it's a call for God's people to remember his mighty works in the past and to translate those past acts as fuel to trust in the present. 
It's a call to recount them often and to teach them always. It's a call to remember, to apply effort, to remember things that you might be able to pass on a test, but that you might drive them into your soul and down deeper, that the roots might take hold, that you might grow something that has no business growing in the clay and the thorns of the wilderness of sin. It's a call to grow. It's a call to fortify something inside of us. And and verse 7 tells us about this call. Look at it. Like verse 7, it tells us that we must remember and meditate on God's past gracious and mighty works. Look in the middle of verse 7. It says that we will not forget the works of God. That we must remember and meditate on God's past and glorious and mighty works to establish our hopes on God and not on the trinkets of this life or in this world, the trinkets that can be lost and taken. So look at the beginning of verse 7. It says, so that they should set their hopes in God. And so the song is to remind us of what God has done in the past, that we might set our hopes on God, that we wouldn't forget what he's done. And then it goes on, that it might enable obedience in the wanderings of the wilderness where you only have partial view of what God is doing. Verse 7 ends, but, or you could say, in order to keep his commandments. And so putting all that together, Psalm 78 tells us that in the wilderness, we must fight to establish our hope in God. And one way that we do that is we remember his mighty past works. Or or even to say it another way, when you find yourself in a wilderness and you're losing hope, think about, study, meditate, recount, remind again and again. Don't just remember it. Preach it to your soul. Preach what God has done in the past and preach the promises that he's giving you. No matter what they feel, push your heart over the ledge to say, I believe this is true and I'm going to lean on it. This is going to tell you to throw yourself like a trust fall, hoping that God catches you. And so if like right now, if you're like, man, that's right, preacher, that is easy to hear. Like you just are not in a wilderness. Like like if that's easy for you to hear, you are not in a season of struggle or you are not in a season of pain and doubt. Or maybe it's a season of numbness I just don't feel. Or, you know, if this comes and it hits you as really, really good news Maybe you were just delivered out of a dark season. And when you look in the rearview mirror, man, the, the brightness of God's grace still shines in front of you so you can see a long ways. The gracious act of God are still bright. But that's not always the case. This might be hard to hear. It might be harder to believe Like, you might be in a season that it seems like the laps around the wilderness are endless. It's a struggle for hope. It's easy to forget the past grace. And it's really hard to trust big preacher promises. Even when he raises his voice and then whispers right after, it's really hard. But once again... The pull of the text is a question, what do I do 
when God turns me right and heads me south into a wilderness, and I don't want to go. Psalm 78, it tells us to teach. It tells us to teach and to remember, and it says it over and over. It tells us what we're supposed to teach to one another, what we're supposed to remember, and it repeats it at least twice from different stories of the Old Testament, different stories of the Bible. And so this is the thesis. Like, I've ordered this under one phrase that I'm going to say about a thousand times. We teach to remember. We teach to remember. And so the first thing that we see is we teach to remember what God has done and what he's like. And so it's going to look at like this. It says, when taken as a whole, we see God as a forgiving God who leads his people into a wilderness and provides them miraculously. And we're supposed to teach and remember that. Like, look at all the words that tell us to open our mouths and to instruct. Like, like look at verse 1, right before. It starts off with this. It says, a masculine of Asaph. Uh, masculine. It's a musical term that all theologians say, man, that must have been lost to time. We don't know what it means, but that means it's like all musical terms to me. I don't know what any of them mean. I took piano when I was in grade school. As soon as my parents let me quit, I quit. I dropped it like a bad habit, except bad habits are really hard to drop. I walked away and I wish my parents would have told me what I was giving up. I didn't know what I was giving up until I was 19 years old. And I was in the living room of our fraternity, and this guy, we called him Big Bird because he was really, really tall, really, really skinny, and he had big, curly, blonde hair, just as goofy as goofy could be. But he sat down at the piano and started to play the piano, and suddenly all the girls in the room moved to him and were like swooning. And I remember, I called my dad, I was like, why did you let me quit? You may never get grandkids, you know. <laughs> but we're to teach. We're to teach. And so whatever this term means, it's like all music terms, like accelerando. I looked it up. It's a musical term, but it might also be a Harry Potter spell. I don't know. All these terms, he says, use whatever you can to teach. And then it says this, give ear, O my people, to my teachings. Incline your ear to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. And so look at these words, teaching, words of my mouth, a parable. Verse 2, this is quoted to explain you know, why Jesus taught the way he did. It was used as a prophecy to say, the Son of Man came to teach in stories. And so Asaph is telling us to teach, and teaching is absolutely necessary to maintain faith in a difficult season. In laps around the wilderness, you need good teaching. You can't give yourself to mindlessly walking around. It will not get you where you want to go. You need to obediently follow what has God done in the past. What will he do in the present? What will he do in the future? And so the first thing is we teach. I don't know if you put it together, man. We, we teach around here a lot. Like right now, there are people and kids teaching. Now, they also do basketball, and they also do crafts, and they also throw animal crackers at your kids just to keep them at bay. But there is teaching. Like right now, every, every week, we have people teaching youth. We have teaching happening in city groups. We have teaching happening in life transformation groups. What I'm doing right now is teaching I actually have a pink thermos cup that says the world's best teacher. Like they don't give that to just anyone. 
we teach. We describe preaching like this, like we want to incline hearts toward repentance by showing you a beautiful Jesus. We want a moment in a sermon every week that you don't just learn new information, but you lean in and you say, I want that to be true. I want there to be hope in the wilderness. I want there to be something that sustains. I want a table in the wilderness when I am dry. I want a God who will lead me by fire and by smoke and will lead me to a promised land, a place that feels safe. I hope that is true. You know, we, we strive to, to preach to, to heads, hands, and hearts. We, we, we want to instruct how you think about something and maybe change your mind about it. Or sometimes the scriptures tell us to stop doing something or to start doing something. Or sometimes we just need to know that God cares. Man, if you're in the Bible reading plan, you notice every week that so much of the liturgy is just pulled out of the Bible reading plan that we're trying to teach, we're trying to layer it in, we're trying to show that there are parts of this that lead us to repentance, there are parts of this that encourage us and give us hope, there are parts that instruct. Man, I was so moved by uh, John 11. I mean, a story that I've read over and over where Lazarus dies the text is so, I mean, it, it takes such careful point to say Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So he waited two days and he let him die to show the glory of God in a resurrection. But when he came face to face with Mary, all he could do was weep. And it says that he was greatly troubled. And that term greatly troubled means he was angry. He was angry at what death has done to the people he's loved. He was angry what death does to his world. He's angry at what sin has done to destroy us. And he was doing something about it. And by raising Lazarus from the dead, the next paragraph says that his enemies, the religious leaders, begin to conspire. How do we kill him? So if you want to hear the gospel to raise you up, Jesus had to enter into death. And so we teach. We, 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 we teach the Bible. Like if you haven't noticed, we open the Bible every week and I just foam at the mouth and yell. And so we do that every week. But we teach the Bible, not just teach the Bible, we teach the Bible to teach the gospel from every book of the Bible because the gospel is the main message of the Bible. It is the thread that connects all things together from the fall of Genesis 3 to the new heavens and new earth of Revelation 21. It ties it together and shows this redemptive stream, this redemptive scarlet letter that pulls everything together in the person of Jesus. We teach the gospel to all of life. We apply it to habits, doubts, fears, and successes. It has something to say about how you feel, what you want, why you fear, and what you fear. It tells us how to do marriage. It tells us how to enjoy singleness. It tells us how to raise kids. It tells us how we're supposed to work jobs. We teach the Bible. We teach the gospel. We teach Jesus. We teach Jesus because we want people to be saved. We want to see sin stopped. We want to see families restored. We want humanity reconciled. We want to see the kingdom of God grow. We teach. Now look at the direction that Asaph says we're supposed to teach. Look at verse 2. He says this. He says, I will utter dark sayings from old. Now that sounds next level stuff, doesn't it? 
utter dark sayings of old, but it is not as cool as it sounds. It's not ominous. It's not even scary. It just means I'm going to bring to light what happened in the past so you understand what God was doing, understand his ways, that you can apply them to the present. It's going to shine light on where you are. And so then it keeps going, verse 3. Things that we have heard, things that we know, things that our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generations. And, and so this is things that we know, but things that we forget, and so things that we have to teach to remember, things that we have to look at again and again and again, because our hearts are leaky and in pain and suffering, and also in plenty, they start to forget. And so he puts it to music and says, man, recite what God has done in the past. Remember it. And right here in verses 3 and 4, you see at least three generations. He says, you know, us that our fathers taught so that we might teach to future generations. But if you jump ahead in verses 5 and 6, it's clearly four generations. And so what, what we see is he's like, this has to be passed on. It has to be said over and over again. We must teach to remember. Verse 4, it says, we must teach to remember the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. And so, like, look at that. Like, we remember the glorious things that he's done. We remember that he is strong and nothing rivals him. We remember that he can do wonderful things. We remember what he's like and what he has done. And so if you feel hopeless, if you feel lost, if you feel like you're on another endless lap, in a broken and dry place around the law of God, and you don't feel the affection of God, this says, look to what God has done and remember. And the reason we look to God, look to what God has done to remember, is so that we can use his words in prayer. You know, the, the picture we have is they're in the wilderness of sin, which sounds like a super awesome place, the wilderness of sin. And it's right around the, the Mount Sinai where the law of God was given. You know, the, the wilderness of sin, it's, not, it's just transliterated from the Hebrew word. It actually means thorns. And so it's a place where nothing grows but thorns. Nothing uh, is profitable. Everything feels lost. The, the work that you would put in the ground would be stolen. And so in the wilderness of, of thorns, on another endless wrap, feeling hopeless and lost, wondering why this all matters, what am I going to do, you know, the, the people of God gave up. Like I, I, you remember, like, like the people of God in Exodus 32, Moses goes up to the mountain to get the law of God, and they're down there, and he's gone for a long time. It says 40 days, which could just mean a long time. Like, we can't count anymore. I mean, and so he's gone a long time, and they start to get afraid. Like, man, Moses tells us where to go and what to do. He talks to God. Maybe Moses has abandoned us. Maybe God has abandoned us. And, and so they start to come together, and they say, man, we got to get a God to protect us. We need a really scary God to go before us in battle to scare everyone away. So they made a golden calf. Because everyone knows a calf frolicking in a field is terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. And the aftermath of all of that is 
You know, Moses came down. Who's on God's side? There was a battle. He goes back up. God looks at Moses or talks to Moses and says, hey, I'm done with those people. I'm done with them. I will start a new line with you. I'm going to kill them. And Moses says, God, don't kill them. Just turn them into sheep. It'd be way more profitable. You know, I could sell them off. No. Moses intercedes for God's people, and he does it by reminding him of what God had said. He goes back to what he remembers, and God remembers, but he says things like this. He says, listen, God, you can't do that. If you do that, it will shame your name among the Egyptians. They'll say you weren't powerful enough to protect them. And that is a powerful argument with God that his name would not be shamed. But he goes on. He says, Lord, you can't do that. You made a promise to Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. You made a promise to him, and you're a promise-keeping God. So don't break your promise. And that is a powerful argument with God. You are the God who keeps promises. And so it says that God relented. And so we remember to feel how we pray, and the way that we pray is we remind God of the promises that he's made. And so we teach. We teach to remember who God is and what he has done. We teach to remember what God has said. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, it says, he established a testimony. That means a lineage of how he works, that people can say, this is what God is like. This is what he does. This is what's expected. So he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know him, the children yet unborn, and arise to tell them of their children. And so there's at least four generations that we heard this from our fathers, we're teaching to our our kids that we teach to the unborn and then we teach again to those who aren't here yet and we teach what God has said and he describes it in his commands and his law and what we learn about the law of God is it's not bad it is a good thing and it gets a bad rap but God's law is to free us it pushes us to our need, but like 1 John 5, 3, it tells us two things. It tells us that those who love God will keep his commandments, but then it says this wonderful thing. It says, and these commandments are not burdensome. They're not meant to weigh you down. They're meant to lift you up, and then it goes on, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. It tells us that because of Jesus, because he went to the cross and now sits at the right-hand side of the Father, we can throw off sin, which so easily entangles us. Have you ever been like walking outside in the middle of the night, you kind of go under some trees, and you walk into a, a spider web, and you snap? I mean, you lose your mind. I mean, you, I mean, you, I mean, you can't get it off you, and you just start flailing around trying to get it off you because you believe there is a spider about to bite you. And if you saw arachnophobia as a kid, you are terrified. It entangles. Some sin you can't see, but it entangles you and you feel it. But you don't know quite how to get it off. And so things enter in like lies. They feel like a quick out, but they entangle us and trap us. And we get more and more caught. When I was doing student ministry, I had a, one of our young men, he sat down with me and he's really distraught. And he says, I don't feel like I can believe anybody anything that they say. And I asked him, why? And he said, because I lie to everybody. Why should I believe anyone tells me the truth? It entangles and it steals. 
Or, or think about like this, like a fire in a fireplace. Sex in marriage warms the whole house. But you take the same fire and you take it out of the fireplace and it burns everything down. Sex lures and then it takes and it takes. It builds hurts and insecurities. They get passed to the next and the next. Soon you start to believe that no one really loves you. They just want parts of you that benefit them. It takes. It entangles. Or greed Greed won't stop. It won't be satisfied. It is the want of wanting. It is the take of taking. Like it sits down. You sit down and you eat and you consume, but you stand up and you're hungry again. The law of God is for your good, not for your harm. It is the loving direction from a loving father. The law of God is a guide to the way of life, and it's a guide to the forgiveness that we need. And so James 5, 16, it says, Therefore confess your sins one to another and pray for each other that you might be healed. For the prayers of the righteous person is powerful and effective. And if you're saying, I don't have enough righteousness, it is held in Jesus. Or Ephesians 5.13 where it says, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes light itself. The transformative power of the gospel is that it can take darkness, pull it into the light, and turn it into something resurrected and beautiful again. We teach. We teach who God is. We teach what God has done. We teach to remember. We teach what God has said that was established in a testimony, a lineage of what God has done in the past. We teach the law of God. We teach to remember that our hearts are prone to wonder and they need to be captured by grace. Like we don't just teach to get behavior. We remember what God has done to be captured because our hearts are prone to wonder. We, we set our hearts and our hopes upon God. Look at verse 7. Like I think this is the, the heart of it. It says, so that they should set their hope or their heart in God, not forgetting the works of God, but keep his commandments. Like it's easy to set our hopes on so many other things. Like the picture of what we're about to see is they're about to say they're in the wilderness and they have needs, so they want water. You need water in the wilderness. Write that down. They're in the wilderness, so they have needs, so they want food. You need food when you go camping. Like write that down. My, uh, my dad would tell a story that um, he and his brother and a, a group, they went camping when they were like in their early 20s. And uh, they thought, man, we don't want to carry like all the food and the stoves and all that stuff. And they really like, you know, like nuts, like assorted nuts. And they said, man, a lot of protein. Man, we'll just take nuts, just nuts and water. We'll be great. And so after the first day, I don't know if you know, if you eat a lot of nuts all in one day and nothing else, it's going to mess you up like mess you up really, really bad. So they were really messed up in the wilderness. They had to borrow food from another hiker because they were like, we have nuts and water, but we're still going to die. In the wilderness, there's lots of needs and lots of things that you start to set your hope on. Water's important, you need it. Food's important, you need it. The past that you used to have starts to weigh in on you and starts to pull you back. Like, have you ever looked around and struggled because it's not what you thought it would be. It feels less than what you had in the past. And you need someone to encourage you in a dry and hopeless season. So Asaph sings a story. 
He tells us about the Exodus. Look, look at verse 12. So the, look at the story. You, you've heard this story. In the sight of their fathers, remember, teach to remember, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt in the fields of Zoan. The fields of Zoan is sometimes called the, uh, the city of Zoan. It's one of the oldest cities in Egypt. It's the place where the pharaohs lived. And so it's the place where the Egyptians, a lot of their suffering happened, building their mon monuments, building their pyramids, building all their things. It was a place of suffering, but it was also the place where Moses squared off with Pharaoh and won their freedom. It was the place where God freed them from their slavery. And he said, remember where God miraculously won your freedom. Verse 13, remember, teach to remember. He divided the seas and let them pass through it and made the water stand like a heap. He says, remember, he walked you through the impossible waters of the Red Sea and in the same waters of your salvation, he killed the enemy that pursued you. And sometimes in baptism interviews, um, when I'm just hearing testimonies and talking about what baptism is, I'll say this. Hey, when you're baptized, is there anything you want to leave in the water? Anything that you want to die? Man, pray about it. But he divided the sea, verse 14, and then he led them. Remember, he led in the daytime, he led with a cloud, and at night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rocks and caused water to flow down like rivers. He says, remember, teach and remember that in the wilderness God led his people with fire and smoke, and he can lead you now, no matter how dark it gets. Teach and remember in the wilderness he provided water, and he can satisfy you now. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that the water that was satisfied was pointing forward to the water that we have in Christ. He says, teach and remember that in the wilderness, and if you jump down and look at verse 23 through 29, you're going to see things like this, that God rained down bread from heaven, verse 24. Or that he rained down meat for, with quail blown in from the wind, verse 27. Or verse 29, it's going to say this, that God satisfied their needs so much that they were well filled, for he gave them what they craved in the wilderness of sin. In a place where thorns and thistles grow. In a place where the curse of Genesis 3 is finding its realization in the ground that you walk in. In the place where it seems everything fights against you and nothing fights for you. And everything that you try to plant is just too dry and too weak to survive. He says, remember. And then there's a warning with the remember. Look at verse 9. The warning is, don't set your hearts on your strength or the strengths of others. This is where we get a proper name. He says, the Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but they refused to walk according to the law. And so the Ephraimites were the strongest tribe of Israel. They forgot their hope was in God's strength and started to think it was in their strength. And we don't know what battle this is or what they're talking about, but whatever it was, they were supposed to fight and they stopped and they refused to fight. Sometimes the wilderness does that to you. The fight feels helpless. It feels exhausting. It feels like you're never going to get through to the other side. You're looking at your bow and the greatest strengths that you have and your sword, and you're like, it's not enough. I should just turn back. 
And this is saying, don't look at the bow. Look at what God has done. He keeps his covenants and he keeps his promises. We teach. We teach who God is. We teach what God has done. We teach to remember what he has said. We teach to remember that our hearts need to be captured because they're prone to wonder. And we teach to remember about the dangers of sin. Sin creates in us an unsatisfiable craving deep in our souls. This song, this psalm, it has two stanzas. And it has the same pattern where it says God acts. And then it shows a way that we rebel. And then it shows God's response. And he responds very differently in two ways. And one time he responds and he gives us exactly what we're asking for. And that doesn't satisfy, doesn't kill sin in us. We just want more. And then later in the psalm, you know, God responds by giving a sword from other nations. And then they both end these sections with God's grace. God relents and gives grace. And so like, just to kind of walk through it, you know, God acts in verses 12 through 16. He goes back to the parting of the Red Sea, God saving uh, his people through the sea in verse 13. He leads them by cloud and fire in verse 14. And then in the wilderness, he makes water flow from rocks, verse 15 and 16. But our response is we rebel. Like we demand more and more. This isn't enough. We need more. And so then verse 17 and 18, it says, Yet they sin still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their hearts by demanding food that they craved. And so then God's response is he, he gives manna from heaven and he gives quail. They said, man, we have to have meat and we have to have bread. We can't live. We need more. And God says, okay. God gets angry. You see his anger described right before that. But then he gives grace. You know, in Numbers 11, we get a little bit more of the story where they start looking back and they're like, man, after God gave manna and he gave quail, they start to complain, man, all we have is quail and manna, you know, magic bread from heaven. Magic bread from heaven isn't good enough. I need something else. And they start to say things like this. If only we could go back to Egypt. In Egypt, we had fish and cucumbers and leeks and onions, and we never had to pay for any of it. Could you imagine Moses' response to that? You're right. You never had to pay for anything. Oh, because you never had money, because you were slaves. But the danger is we start to remember only partial things because the view from the rear view mirror when we look back is so tunnel and there's a wondering of man I want to go back and so God responds he responds and he's angry but he gives them what he wants and he rains down bread and he rains down meat but they were left unsatisfied and then you see in verse 32 Look at these phrases, verse 32, verse 38, verse 39. You see God gives grace. He says, despite all of this, they sinned again. Verse 38. But God is compassionate, covering their iniquities. Verse 39. He remembered that they were but mere flesh. Grace. 
And the second stanza, like we're not going to spend, it's the exact same pattern. God acts, except this time he goes a little bit further back. He goes back to the plagues that forced Pharaoh to let his people go. He talks about, you know, water to blood in verse 44. And then he talks about the flies and he talks about the locusts, verse 45 and 46. He talks about the frogs. He, He talks about the death of the firstborn son in verse 51. So God acts mightily for him. But then we see in verse 56 that they run after the, the other gods and they try to go to the high places and to worship them. And so we rebel. And then we see God responds, but this time he doesn't give them what they want. He gives them the sword from other nations to come and conquer them and to kill a lot of them. But then again, in verse 65, you see this act of grace that he establishes a kingdom through King David. And that line would eventually lead us to Christ. And so he ends with grace. Like, do you see this pattern? Sin lodges deep in our souls and we long for something more. Our hearts are placed upon that something. We want what we don't have. Even when God provides, we want, we desire more. It isn't enough. We demand the cucumbers and we forget the slavery. And the warning is spelled out in verse 8. Verse 8, it says, And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The psalm says, we teach to remember. We teach to remember. And then look at verse 19. Verse 19, we end with this question. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Yes. 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 He rained manna down from heaven. I don't know what manna is. They try to describe it, but they say it's a coriander seed wafer. I don't know what a coriander seed is. But he miraculously provided. He did. He brought quail in, water from rocks. Can God make a table in a desert? And the answer is yes. And so when you're looking to the east and you see the promised land and it is right before you, it is a straight shot. It looks like three weeks of travel and we're going to be there. And it is a place of, you know, the land that flows with milk and honey, which is great news unless you're lactose intolerant, which I keep acting like I'm not and I'll have ice cream and I regret it. But like it, it looks like a great place, but suddenly God starts to turn you right. It takes you 200 miles out of the way into a wilderness. We teach to remember who God is. We teach to remember what he has done. We teach to remember that our hearts are prone to wonder. We teach to remember that sin is so deep and it is dangerous. We teach to remember that God sends those whom he loves into the wilderness. God led Israel into the wilderness and God loved Israel. There was something about the promised land that they weren't ready for. They needed to learn that no matter the provisions around them, it is only God who can really satisfy their soul. It is only God that can hold up their happiness. And so he had to pull all these things away before they were surrounded by abundance. God loved Israel, and they found themselves in a wilderness. 
If you're having a hard time, believe that, then believe this. God certainly loved his son Jesus, and he sent Jesus into a wilderness too. In the wilderness, Satan tempted. Satan came to Jesus, and he accused, and he said things, if God really loved you, you wouldn't be here hungry all the time. Rise up. And make bread out of these rocks. Don't wait for God. If you are who you say you are, then surely God wants you to have bread. And what did Jesus do? He went to a table. He said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by the words of God. He went to a table and he fed himself. And so Satan came back and he strikes back and he says, if God really loves you, if you're really his beloved son, throw yourself from the temple, make yourself known, start the ministry now. Don't wait and suffer here. Get into the limelight and do what you're supposed to do. Don't wait for God's timing. Sure, he led you around, you know, people of God around by his timing with a pillar of fire and smoke. But if you're really who you say you are, don't wait. What did Jesus do? He says, it is written, do not test God. Wait for his timing. When he wants me to make myself known, I'll be made known. So then Satan tempts again, and he says, if you're really loved by God and your mission is for the nations and all kingdoms, trust in me and worship me, and I'll give you the nations. And Jesus clung to the scriptures. He stepped back to the table, and he fed up on the scriptures, and he says, it is written, Worship and serve God alone. In the wilderness, God can provide a table. Jesus' table, his nourishment started with what was written. And so that's why we teach. That's why we teach who God is, what he has done. Our hearts are prone to wonder and sin is dangerous. And so if God has turned you south, if he's leading you into a wilderness detour, we invite you to this table. Every week, we teach that you might remember who God is. And every week, we invite you to a table that the people of God would come and they would remember what satisfies our soul is the person of Jesus. And the person of Jesus, his body was broken, his blood was shed, that we might have life and life abundant. And that is available even in the dark, scorching heat of the wilderness where everything feels dry. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that... Um, Lord, I pray that you would have inclined hearts just to lean just a little bit. And Lord, I pray for those who are like, man, so weighty of a sermon. Life is great. Like everything is unicorn and butterflies. Man, I pray, man, they just keep living. That's great. If God has you in a pleasant season, come to the table and say thank you. But I pray for others who find themselves in a hard season, a dry season, a season that feels like endless laps, laps that mean nothing around and around the wilderness. Lord, I pray that they would find nourishment at the table. 
Lord, I pray that your spirit would touch and the roots would go deeper, and I pray that you would satisfy. And Lord, I pray that we would make a decision to come to the table to feast upon the word of God. And Lord, that happens in two ways. Like that happens when we sit down to remember the truths of what you have done and what you're like when we go to the scriptures to find Jesus. And it happens when we come to the table and remember that you said you are the word of God. That you are the author of life. That you will perfect life. That you are the author and perfecter. That you will finish what you started. And Lord, I pray that you would give sustaining grace just a little bit. We thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas, please visit our website at fcclawrence.com.